Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Lyme disease was first discovered in Old Lyme, Connecticut, but today the disease is in all 50 states, according to the federal CDC. What's the best way to prevent more cases? Researchers in Connecticut have been studying a new strategy to reduce the ticks that carry Lyme. We'll talk with science writer Angus Chen about efforts to vaccinate mice. That's coming up later. Since we're talking rodents, you may have seen a recent story in the Hartford Current about a rat problem in some neighborhoods in the capital city. Coming up, we'll hear from a biologist about why rats have adapted so well to living near humans in urban areas. But first, joining us to talk about Hartford's efforts to reduce the rat population. In studio with me now is Dan Lusa, rodent inspector for the city of Hartford. Dan, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me here. And Liani Arroyo is director of the Department of Health and Human Services for the city of Hartford. Liani, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So, Dan, let's learn more about your job. I understand, again, through uh, the Hartford Current reporting as well as uh, what we were talking with you before the show, uh, you've been responding uh, to calls to 311 when city residents in Hartford are complaining about rodents. So tell me about uh, what's been happening lately. Have you been having to go out more often? Yes. Uh, after the well, after this article, we have a, a whole bunch of rodent complaints, and it's based on three one complaints. And uh, when I go out there, I assess the situation, and usually it's exposed garbage, dumpsters overflowing. There's a hole in a dumpster, and a lot of times people complain they have a rodent problem, but it's not their property; it's next door property with the exposed garbage and stuff. So hopefully. Well, the next few months, we're going to hire more rodent inspectors and nuisance inspectors so we can do, be proactive, go from block to block to block. And that's the way we can get a control of the rodent population and stuff. So. When we're talking about uh, rodents uh, uh, being an issue in particular neighborhoods, where in the city? Citywide. It does a, I had a complaint maybe like a couple months ago. Nice property. I go there. Lo and behold, they have a bird feeder hanging out, and the rats are eating the bird seeds on the ground. And they had a little run right to the garage where they were living. So it's a citywide problem. So how does someone know that uh, they have an issue with rats? Because they see them? Or what are some of the telltale signs, so to speak, that there's rats hanging out your, by your house? Well, a lot of times they drive in their driveway and all of a sudden they see a rat scurrying from the, from the garbage cans to the place where they live, like to next to their garage or like next to their house and stuff. So and they see the holes in the garbage cans that they're gnawed, you know, and that's some of the, you know, telltale signs of rodent infestation. Uh, Liani, again, you're director of the Department of Health and Human Services for the city of Hartford. Uh, so when did this uptick really start? Well, I think folks are getting more educated in seeing what's happening and using the 311 system more. So we do know that there's quite a number of things happening in the city that might have disturbed sort of natural rodent habitats. We have the big MDC project that's happening, and that's digging into the sewer. Um, so we work closely with MDC and, and uh, working with them to ensure that we're mitigating that. 
uh, you know, construction projects as well can oftentimes be a cause of rodents moving around. But the reality is, you know, we, we have a city. It's an urban area. There's lots of people, lots of density, lots of food establishments and things in the in our neighborhoods. So it's, it is a part of urban living, and our job is to control that and work with both our business owners and our property owners to work together to learn how to deal with it. Mm. Uh, Dan, you said something earlier when you responded to a particular call at a home and they had a bird feeder out. So obviously rats are attracted to where there's food. Correct. Uh, so when we think about whether someone has a seed uh, during the winter uh, in their bird feeder or um, are city residents doing enough to control uh, to keep rats from um, you know, biting into their garbage? Uh, is there a trash par- problem in terms of securing it in certain parts of the city? Well, you need to educate the uh, people first, you know, whether that be like uh, a website or uh, hand out pamphlets. A lot of people think, oh, we're just feeding the birds. But no, you're feeding the rats also. And people like throw bread out in storefronts, you know, the extra, you know, and lo and behold, they have rats, you know, mm-hmm. running around nighttime eating the, the bread and stuff. But the main thing is the we have to be proactive. A lot of people don't call in for rodent complaints, and them are the worst case scenarios. I don't know if they're scared or they're afraid to get fined. Yeah, and we went out the other day, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, there's like right on the sidewalk, there's like 20 holes. No one called it in. We just happened. I just happened to notice it. So it's that's another plus to being proactive, because a lot of people don't call in, and that's you know they don't call in at all. So. Liani, did you want to build on that? Um, Because when we think about pest control, it can oftentimes be reactive. So in terms of being more proactive, do we need more dans on the street in Hartford to help with rodent uh, control? Well, absolutely. And that's part of the work that we've been doing. We knew when I came on board, I knew that this was an issue that wanted to be addressed. I was told that by the administration that this was something that needed to be addressed. And we've spent the last year working and educating ourselves more about what's out there. So we sent someone to our, our division head to the Rodent Control Academy in New York City to find the out. Rodent Control Academy? The Rodent <laughs> Control Academy. Rodent Academy, yes, I in New York City. <laughs> so, I think Dan probably should have gone to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might be going this upcoming year. There's not to say that that won't happen, but we sent our division head out there to come back and let us know what's the newest stuff that's happening. So we know that there's an aspect of education for the community that we need to work on. Um, And so that's part of it. We know that we need to get out there more often um, with more people. And that's another part of it. And then the other piece is what Dan has said is really making sure that people are calling it in. Right. And not thinking that somebody else is calling it in, because the more that we can get ahead of something, the better it is. And and we've been doing, uh, as Dan has said previously, what we see right now isn't as bad as what was happening in the 90s, right? So those efforts have definitely carried over. So we want to continue those efforts and get better and do more work and be, and be more proactive around education in the community. This is where we live. And studio with me, Liani Arroyo, a director of the Department of Health and Human Services for the City of Hartford, and Dan Lusa, rodent inspector for the City of Hartford. Uh, today we're uh, taking a full hour to talk about rodents. Uh, recently, uh, a story in the Hartford Current about a rat uh, influx in certain neighborhoods. Hoods. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking with a biologist about uh, why uh, urban rats have uh, gotten so well, have adapted so well to living uh, near humans. Uh, but if you want to join our conversation, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so Dan, what are the steps? Uh, you mentioned uh, being proactive, uh, uh, residents calling in when they uh, notice a particular activity. But in terms of trying to control rats, uh, they can be uh, vectors for disease. What are the things that you do when you go out? 
out to control the population? Well, you have to get rid of the food source. The rats got to eat. And so, like I said before, the dumpsters, the garbage cans, bird feeders, you got to get rid of the food source. And then when you get rid of the food source, we put poison down. That's the last step we do, put poison down. And you got to make where sure. Where does the poison go? Inside the rat rodent burrow. And uh, I put the poison in the rodent burrow, cover it up, and I, I go there the next day to check to see if it's popped out again or it's still covered the hole. And uh, it's a day-to-day, you know, process. So we, we just don't, like, put the poison down and come back a month later. We just, like, check check on it regularly and uh, basically get rid of the food source. You know, inter- it's called integrated pest management. Poison's the last step we do. Mm. Uh, some of our listeners, when they hear that um, a rodenticide or some type of poison is being used, they worry about that traveling up the food chain, especially when uh, rodents are uh, preyed on by raptors such as owls and, and other uh, and, uh, other birds. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I heard, Liani, uh, when you mentioned this uh, rodent academy in New York City, what are some other approaches to dealing with uh, rats uh, that don't uh, include using poison? Great. So, I mean, I think one of, one of the first things to, to mention to pick up a little bit on what Dan was saying is the importance of integrated pest management, right? So the first thing we want to do is really make sure that anything that can contribute to that is taken care of. So that can be leaves, bushes that have not been taken care of that are overgrown. Uh, that could be trash. That could be your pet waste, right? Because that's another that's another aspect, leaving your pet food out. So we want to make sure that's done first. After we go through all those steps, we're also helping the homeowner make sure that they're protecting their home, ensuring that there's no way for anything to get inside their home. And then, as Dan mentioned, rodenticide is last. Mm-hmm. All the rodenticide that we used is very much controlled. Uh, the, the percentages of all the poisons and all of those things are controlled by the state deep, right? They regulate that. And that is to ensure that we're not harming other animals. Mm-hmm. So we are very careful about that. We ensure that if we see presence of pets and other small animals, we take other steps before we use rodenticide. And if we see pet waste, we're talking to the homeowners about not putting poison down. The other things that we're looking at that really are coming from from our rodent control uh, information is really using dry ice to suffocate them in burrow holes, right? That would make Dan's work in many ways and, and additional rodent control inspectors that we may get um, a lot a lot more uh, fruitful in many ways, right? So if they go out and they see a presence of live animals, they want to work with the homeowner to clean everything up before they put rodenticide. But in this case, they can just put the dry ice in the burrow, right? And we don't have to worry about other animals getting in there. So that's one of the biggest things that we're learning about and that we're getting more information about. So that is ideally a part of, will be a part of our upcoming plan to move forward on that. I just want to pick up on something, uh, Dan. Um, would you uh, tell uh, residents that you're encountering when you, if they have uh, a rat uh, issue uh, in their neighborhood to not go out and buy the, the, the poison? Yeah, because a lot of times they go to Home Depot, buy some poison, and they put it in a plate and leave it in the backyard. A squirrel, a possum, skunk could get it. Someone's cat or dog. Some, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they think they're helping out. Oh, I got this in the backyard. I go, no, just get rid of it. I'll take care of it. Yeah, so that's why it's it's important that call in to us and we'll take care of it. You know, And then we could, like, some people want to call an exterminator, but we have more, like, power than exterminator. We could, like actually cite the next property over and educate them, tell them, hey, you got to get rid of your 
dumpster or, you know, or, or repair it and stuff. So. This is where we live. Again, uh, we're talking about uh, how cities are trying to uh, combat uh, a rodent infestation, uh, specifically rats uh, in Hartford is what this segment's about. Um, Alex uh, wants to join the conversation from, from New Haven. Alex, go ahead. So on the New Haven Green, there are metal uh, receptacles for trash, and within those metal receptacles go a plastic liner. The metal receptacles have gaps in them, and so what happens is the rats eat through the plastic liner, and they can get that waste into the plastic bag. So if the garbage is not changed daily, then at night, you can go into the Haven Green and check it out. There's little holes in all the plastic liners and all the metal containers. That's how the rats get in at night and eat, eat there. All right, Alex, thank you uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, so is that something that uh, the city of Hartford, uh, he's calling from New Haven, but in terms of getting into the, the public uh, receptacles uh, in parks? Absolutely. And so we know we have had some, some parks have changed over to sort of the big compactors that are fantastic. And so that is something that's also a part of what we're looking at. Um, they're pricey and, and they need a maintenance schedule. So we're, we're looking at all of those options, but it's definitely a part of the work, right? When we're thinking about the plan that we've put together for the city, um, it's really comprehensive. It's not just we're going to throw some extra inspectors out there because that's not enough, right? It's the inspectors, it's the education, it's the proactiveness, it's um, changing things that need to be changed, like having more of those big compactors that are metal around. So all of that is on the table um, and moving forward uh, as we're going through our budgeting process. But there will be things that we'll be doing in the spring, right? So we're going to have... Um, don't have a really catchy name for it yet, but there will definitely be a campaign in the springtime to go out and educate our residents and go out and do more surveying of as well as, as Dan was saying, going block to block, identifying what needs to be done and working as we have in the past very closely with our nuisance inspectors. Uh, so as we head into break, Liani, uh, three things that city residents can do to, to help uh, combat this issue. So in your own neighborhood, if you see trash and you can help, pick it up. It's, it's everyone's responsibility, right? The city does its part. We should all be doing our part. So if you see something, pick it up. If you see something, call 311 and let us know if it's overflowing dumpsters, if it's rodents. And then lastly, on your own properties, just be conscious of what you're doing. Um, if you have pets, curb your pets. If you um, have a bird feeder, please don't put it out because that will attract, especially in areas where we know we there there could be a lot of rodent activity. So those, I think, are three things that our residents can do to, to help control the population. And, Dan, you said earlier for the business owners, don't throw bread on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, because they do that. And it's for the birds. If you need the birds, yeah. It'll help out, sure. <laughs> well, Dan, Lisa, we appreciate you coming in. Again, the road inspector for the city of Hartford and Liani Arroyo, director of the Department of Health and Human Services for the city of Hartford. Both of you, thanks so much for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn more about urban rats and find out maybe we just have to learn to live alongside them. We're going to take your questions, too. Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We just heard about how Hartford is dealing with an influx of rats in certain parts of the city. It's certainly not the first urban area to wrestle with a ratastrophe. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but when you think about city rats, New York City probably comes to mind. Thankfully, our next guest works in the city and has the answers to some of our questions, like what makes rats so adaptable? Joining us via Skype is Jason Munchie South, professor of biology at Fordham University. His lab studies animals that live in cities, and he focuses particularly on rats. Jason, welcome to our show. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. So we, first we wanted to find out, you know, why do you study rats, Jason? Uh, well, my, my career actually began studying um, native animals in city parks and how they're adapting to live in urban conditions. Um, but rats are this, you know, omnipresent animal in, in places like New York City. And we realized, you know, a lot of people had not studied their basic biology or evolution or, or how they were succeeding in cities. Um, and so we decided that this would actually be a, a, a creature that we should learn more about, especially how it relates to uh, human communities, because they're very tightly, their ecology, their evolution is very tightly um, linked to human behavior. So when we think about uh, urban rats, uh, what kinds of rats are we talking about when we are in New York City and might see them scurrying around the subway? Uh, in New York City and the rest of the Northeast United States, places like Hartford, uh, there is one species of uh, rat that has invaded the city. It's uh, Rattus norvegicus, uh, the brown rat or the Norway rat, sometimes called the city rat or the sewer rat. Um, and it's moved all over the world at this point and is uh, particularly common in, in uh, colder cities. Uh, there's another rat that lives in some cities in the United States, the black rat, and it actually arrived um, in most cities earlier than the brown rat um, because it, it survives very well on ships and it, was, it moved around very quickly. But when the brown rat arrived, uh, the brown rat seems to have outcompeted the black rat in colder areas. So now we just have this one species. The brown rat or the Norway rat, uh, that's a misnomer. So where do they actually come from, Jason? Yeah, the, the Norway rat name uh, comes from, you know, early invasions in Europe when they were identified, you know, the, the, the species was identified by a, a biologist from specimens collected in Norway. So he called it the Norway, the Norway rat. Uh, but the species actually originated in northeastern China. And uh, we believe that's where it originally evolved to become commensal with humans. Commensal means, literally means uh, that they eat at the same table with us. Uh, so at this, at this, in this place, um, thousands of years ago, likely when people in northeastern China began developing agriculture, the rat, the brown rat evolved to basically live off of uh, grain that was being stored and grown in fields. Uh, you also mentioned the black rat. Uh, is that something that do people associate that with the plague? Uh, that's right. So the black rat evolved likely, um, originated likely in, in India, on the uh, South Asian subcontinent, and then moved into the Middle East in Europe and before the brown rat. And it's implicated as uh, one of the major sources of the plague bacteria. Um, it was ultimately the, the fleas biting the rats and then biting humans that spread the plague. But they're, they're thought to be the source of some of those major plague outbreaks in Europe that killed a large uh, proportion of the human population. And why are brown rats, uh, why have they been able to dominate? Uh, and what happened to the black rat? Uh, we actually don't know for sure how the brown rat uh, outcompetes the black rat. They will live in the same cities in warmer areas like New Orleans. And they subdivide the habitat where the black rat will be living up in 
roofs of buildings or in trees or in vegetation, and the brown rat will be living down closer to the ground. Um, in terms of why the brown rat is so successful in cities, uh, there's a couple reasons. Uh, one is that they can eat just about anything we eat. So anything we are throwing away, uh, they can take advantage of. And they like foods that are high in protein, high in fat, presumably things that are high in sugar. So the kinds of things that uh, our modern diet is composed of. And they will eat uh, vegetables and, and fruits when available. Uh, so that's one reason. The other reason is that they are exquisitely adapted for rapid reproduction. Uh, so I can give you a bit of a scenario. So imagine uh, a single brown rat female is born. Uh, in about five weeks, she is able to get pregnant. Uh, it only takes her three weeks to gestate the babies, and then she can give birth to anywhere from a few to over 10 pups. Uh, and while she is nursing them, she can actually get pregnant again. And so she's simultaneously nursing one litter and gestating the next one. Uh, so if conditions are good and resources are highly available, uh, a brown rat female can produce uh, dozens of offspring in her lifetime. That poor mama rat. <laughs> That's a lot of <laughs> a lot of babies to have to support yeah. there. Um, when we also think about uh, the brown rat, uh, can you talk about in terms of how they were able uh, to be spread uh, worldwide and how that um, had to do with the timing of when they came to Europe? Sure. Uh, my lab has recently completed a study using whole genome sequences of rats that we um, either collected ourselves around the world or other scientists sent to us. And we're using that information to reconstruct the history of this species. And uh, it does seem that they uh, evolved in northeastern China, and that's where you have the most diverse rat populations. And then not that long ago, probably less than 1,000 years ago, uh, they finally made their way into Southeast Asia um, following agricultural communities. And then once they got into Southeast Asia, they moved into the Middle East about 100 years later. So we're talking maybe you know 800 years ago, 900 years ago. And then... Uh, our dating of these uh, genetic differences between rat populations suggests they got into Europe uh, sometime on the order of you know 400 to 500 years ago, maybe a little earlier in Eastern Europe. And then what happened is once they had ex expanded across uh, Western Europe into France and Spain and Portugal and, and Great Britain, they happened to arrive about the same time uh, that these countries were sending out huge numbers of naval ships and, and merchant ships uh, in an attempt to dominate other parts of the world. Uh, and it's th during that period that the brown rat was sp likely spread to Africa, North and South America, uh, Australia. So they basically hitched a ride on all of these uh, imperial ships that originated in France and Great Britain and Spain and Portugal. Uh, and you see, so what we see is a very close relationship between most of the urban rat populations in the eastern United States, South America, Africa, uh, to populations in present-day United Kingdom and France and Spain. You're hearing Jason Munshi-South, professor of biology at Fordham University here on Where We Live. His lab studies animals that live in cities with a particular focus on rats. Uh, and uh, you had mentioned, Jason, that uh, this uh, big genetic study of brown rats uh, and what you've learned about um, how they've spread. But when you look at, when you've also looked at the particular genetics of the New York City brown rats, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've learned about their characteristics and what parts of the city uh, they live. Sure. Uh, so we've also done a very fine-scale study on the island of Manhattan. 
Uh, my graduate student, Matt Combs, and I have trapped hundreds of rats on Manhattan and used genetics to understand how they're related. Uh, we also wanted to know specifically where these rats came from. And we originally thought they would have uh, been derived from multiple sources, Great Britain, maybe France, maybe Asia more recently. Uh, but what we found is that the population seems to be composed of a single lineage likely from the United Kingdom. Uh, so it seems that they hitched a ride with ships, um, likely in the 1700s. It's thought that they originated um, around the Revolutionary War period, when there was a lot of uh, ships going back and forth. Uh, and when we look at the present-day population on a fine scale, so stepping away from you know how they're related to other populations, just looking at Manhattan, uh, we were interested in whether it's a single population that just mixes freely across the island, or whether there are um, small sort of like rat neighborhoods or divisions in the population. And one thing we found is that a rat at the tip of Manhattan is different than a rat at the bottom, and there's kind of a continuous change as you go from north to south. Uh, but then we were surprised to find that there's actually a break in the population in midtown Manhattan. So we could actually identify uh, an uptown and a downtown set of rats that uh, aren't mixing all that often. And so, and, oh, I'm go, go, go ahead, ahead, Jason. Um, so I was just thinking about like when a particular rat might still be uh, traveling into the city uh, that aren't from the these uh, uptown or downtown uh, rat uh, um, populations, do they welcome me? I mean, how do how do they compete with these rats that aren't from town, so to speak? We don't know the answer to that for sure, but there have been studies that have documented rats coming out of shipping containers at ports. So presumably that happens in northeastern cities as well. Um, and the rats will just kind of hang around the port, and they don't seem to move very far into the local population. Uh, it may be that uh, rats actually exclude outsiders if there aren't enough resources. I would assume that especially females can integrate and breed with males in the, the population they've arrived in, but they don't seem to do that often enough to have a genetic impact. Um, so it seems that they're, you know, even if they're making it to these cities, they're not integrating into the local population. It's likely a behavioral response um, that these rats favor um, breeding with familiar rats from a familiar population. Uh, when you think about the uptown and downtown uh, rats, uh, uh, in terms of what uh, draws them to those particular uh, parts of Manhattan, um, is there something about the specific landscape, uh, the garbage that they're able to access, uh, and how far do they travel, Jason? Well, our results suggest they don't travel very far at all in their lifetime, uh, that most rats are born and they stay within uh, a few dozen meters even of where they were born. So they may be traveling you know, a block or two from their original colony, but many of them will stay. Uh, there may be a slight difference between males and females. Males tend to move a little bit farther, but even they are not moving, you know, more than maybe 100 meters in their lifetime. Uh, and so that, that behavior in an urban environment allows for these local communities to develop. Uh, the reason we think there's a split in Midtown, and there's some data from the New York City Department of Public Health that backs this up, uh, there just aren't very many rats in Midtown, and it's likely because there aren't as many residential buildings, so that you you know they're not generating as much garbage that gets put out on the street in bags that the rats can eat. Uh, and there's also you know quite a a number of commercial buildings there that uh, basically pay extra money and hire extra cleaners to deal with street level garbage. Uh, so that from a rat's perspective, their areas of Midtown are kind of a desert of resources where they don't do very well. 
and there's probably also enhanced um, pest management practices there. So it it's actually you know a bit hopeful. It shows that um, even in a place like Manhattan, you can suppress the rat population and and, uh, and keep them down at least on a on a local level. Um, the situation is quite a bit different if you look in Lower Manhattan, uh, Chinatown, the Wall Street area. That area tends to have the largest rat populations, and they're the most genetically diverse. Uh, and that's where rats were originally introduced, um, because Manhattan was basically a city down at the southern tip of Manhattan, and then the rest was farms and other types of development um, before the city heavily urbanized. Uh, but also down there is where you have the oldest infrastructure. So there are even wood sewer sewer pipes down there, brick sewer pipes, all sorts of abandoned underground infrastructure that rats are taking advantage of. So the situation is quite different in lower Manhattan. Jason, we started the show uh, talking uh, specifically about Hartford with some uh, Hartford officials about how they're dealing with uh, residents' uh, com- increased complaints about rats. Um, is there really a growth in rat populations being seen in cities like Hartford, uh, New York, D.C., or is it just that people are noticing them more? That is actually unknown. Uh, anecdotally, there has been an increase in complaints, in news stories, in attention to rats, uh, but nobody is actually collecting long-term population data on urban rats. Uh, there are efforts in New York City and other places to do that, but we haven't been doing it long enough to know for sure that the rat population has increased. Uh, we do have some ideas. Um, you know, Global climate change may actually increase urban rat populations. It certainly doesn't feel like it now, but this is just a short-term weather event where we have all this cold, but uh, cities over time, they're already warmer than the surrounding landscape. And as uh, the climate warms more generally, we're going to have more moderate winters in cities and and uh, rats will do, do better um, if they don't have to deal with extreme cold during the winter. This kind of cold snap may actually be good. It may uh, kill a lot of rats if it's long enough. Um, but ultimately, we don't know for sure. Uh, one thing that was observed in New York City, and I think it sounded like something similar happened in Hartford, uh, once the city made it easier to complain by introducing a, a smartphone app that you could use to complain about rats, the number of complaints shot up immediately. Uh, and one interpretation of that is that, oh, there are more rats, but actually it's probably that people were complaining more often and in higher volume. Uh, when we think about uh, what makes rats so adaptable, uh, obviously cities have different ways of of uh, managing these pests. Uh, some people don't like having them around because they don't like the way they look, uh, but we do know rats can be reservoirs for uh, disease. Um, as you move forward and when you think about the, the research that you've done and how what cities can learn from uh, this type of research when they think about controlling the rat population, I mean, they can only do so much, right? Rats will be living alongside us um, They've been doing it for a long time, and they will continue to. Should we just accept that they'll be around? We can't eradicate them? Well, I think uh, eradication is off the table for now. There may eventually be technologies like uh, you know, genetic engineering that allows us to introduce genes into the population that cause them to produce all male offspring or something. But that's way off in the future and may never be realized. So we really are in a situation where we need to manage the population. And I think you heard a lot of good strategies from the Hartford officials. I've actually taken that same rodent academy. Um, so I know what they're talking about in terms of integrated pest management. Um, but we shouldn't give up. Uh, you know, Ultimately, rats are a human-caused prob- problem, and it largely has to do with access to food and nesting sites. Uh, so if you can manage garbage and exclude rats from eating that garbage and you know, this is uh, 
underappreciated. But you, if you can exclude them from places like cracks in buildings and cracks in the sidewalk and from getting into basements, they don't have nearly as many uh, refuges from the cold and places to raise their young safely. So you can, you can reduce the population that way. Part of the problem is that most uh, municipal programs focus on one property at a time where there has been a problem detected or a complaint has been received. But really, you need to deal with the neighborhood level rat issue because it only really takes one property to be the, the reservoir or the seed population for the rest of the neighborhood. Um, so I think that's really the challenge is getting everybody on board, private property owners, various city agencies. Um, and then, you know, smaller problems that can have a big impact, like people that feed pigeons. All of these things come together to create uh, urban rat populations. Uh, Jason, we uh, just have under a minute, but I did want to ask, uh, we, you know, we think about uh, how many uh, millions of people continue to uh, you know, be attracted to living in cities. And uh, when we think about other pests that have uh, lived in areas and they uh, no longer can compete with humans, uh, rats seem to have that uh, better adaptability, uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, is there an example of, of What's going to happen in terms of as humans become denser in cities? Can we expect the rat populations will also um, happen to become more dense as well? Uh, I think they will. Uh, if if somebody out there is looking for a career where they will be employed most <laughs> indefinitely, I think uh, rat population control and and uh, pest management will be something for the future, um, for sure. And we're not going to defeat them anytime soon. Well, Jason Munchie-South, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, we're out of time. Professor of Biology at Fordham University. Again, his lab studies animals that live in cities with a particular focus on rats. We'll tweet out links uh, to uh, more about his research at Where We Live. Jason, thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, researchers have been studying a new strategy to fight Lyme disease, and it involves vaccinating mice. We'll explain after a short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Lyme disease is something many of us worry about, especially in Connecticut when the weather warms up and we spend more time outside. Now, is the key to fewer Lyme disease cases found in a campaign to vaccinate not humans, but mice? A recent article in Scientific American explains the strategy. For more, joining us via Skype is Angus Chen. He's a New York City-based science reporter, and uh, he authored a recent article in Scientific American. Uh, Angus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Great to be here. Many of us know that uh, the state has the distinction of being, quote unquote, Lyme country, the first case recorded in old Lyme, Connecticut, that's down by the shore. Uh, so uh, what do you think when you were doing your research that, that this, uh, this uh, research, this strategy we're going to talk about is actually happening right here in Connecticut? Yeah, that's right. There's been actually a lot of work on this research in Connecticut an earlier pilot study was done to see if uh, mice would actually go for this vaccine. And pretty soon we'll be seeing results from a study that was done in the last couple of years, seeing if this vaccination for mice could really reduce the prevalence of Lyme disease in sort of the neighborhoods and the communities where we live. Now, before we talk more about this vaccine for mice, I understand that uh, scientists did develop a vaccine for Lyme disease uh, for humans, but um, how come we're not getting that today, Angus? 
Yeah, Lucy, that's really kind of the tragedy of this story. Uh, we had a pretty effective Lyme disease vaccine for humans, and it came out on the market in 1998 under the brand name Limerix. Like a lot of vaccines, you would take a series of these shots. Like I think for this one, it was three shots, and you would get uh, pretty pretty good immunity against Lyme disease. But what happened was pretty soon after this vaccine came out on the market, uh, a lot of fear got stoked up around this vaccine. There was sort of this big anti-vaccine hysteria uh, related to the Lyme disease vaccine. People were afraid that the Lyme disease vaccine was actually causing a lot of symptoms that Lyme disease has, uh, like joint pain or fatigue and those kinds of things. So after the, after the vaccine came out on the market, lawsuits started being filed against the company and people got too afraid to start actually getting it and doctors stopped recommending it. And in, I think about 2002, the company that created the vaccine, SmithKline Beecham, which is now GlaxoSmithKline, pulled the vaccine off the market. So it, it just, it came on, it was around very briefly and then disappeared. So to be clear, Angus, was there any proven connection between this vaccine and the negative side effects that uh, people alleged uh, were caused by it? So that's kind of the the sad part of the story. Uh, There was a lot of fear and a lot of distrust around the vaccine, but none of it ever turned out to be shown to be true. Um, Researchers ended up looking into the statistics around uh, the symptoms being reported and the vaccines that had been given to people, and it just didn't seem like there was any link between what people were alleging was happening due to the vaccine and what was actually happening. Um, So the short answer is no. Uh, Whatever this fear was, it seems to be completely unfounded. So the human vaccine for Lyme disease sidelined, but so then the development of vaccine for animals. Can you walk us through? uh, Is that something when we think about when we have uh, dogs or cats in our home that this is something? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the vaccine that was developed for humans and the vaccine that we have for Lyme disease that we give to dogs and, and, and pets and things like that is pretty much the same vaccine. It works in, on the same principle. And the vaccine works actually really well. The, the thing that the researchers began thinking about after, after the human vaccine got pulled off the market was, well, we have this super effective vaccine. Is there another way that we can leverage it to actually protect people's health? Um, if we can't give it directly to the people, maybe we could give it to wildlife and try to eliminate Lyme disease from the source. And that's kind of where this idea of giving this Lyme disease vaccine to mice came from. Because mice are probably the most important reservoir for Lyme disease. What that means is that mice carry the bacteria inside of their body a lot of the time. And when a tick has the bacteria, the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria that causes Lyme disease, About half the time, that tick got it from biting an infected mouse. So researchers thought, well, if we could develop this vaccine so that it would work for mice and we could spread it in the wilderness or around the communities and neighborhoods where we live and get mice to actually take this vaccine, maybe we could stop ticks from getting infected with the bacteria in the first place and then having those ticks transmit that bacteria onto humans. That's interesting that uh, that you um, say that because, you know, public sentiment when we think about Lyme disease is that uh, these are deer ticks, and so it's the uh, the deer that are overpopulated, and uh, there have been efforts to cull their population, but the key might be vaccinating mice. Yeah, so 
deer are an important part of the, the tick life cycle and killing deer so if you if you were to kill like all the deer in connecticut that would actually probably have a big impact on lyme disease transmission rates in the state uh the problem with that of course is that you know people don't want to kill all the deer in the state that would be not not exactly the most ecologically and environmentally sound thing to do and the thing with the vaccine is that you don't actually kill any animals so the benefit of that researchers are thinking is well if we don't have to kill any animals we're just sort of delivering this vaccine to them. Maybe we can take Lyme disease out of the equation without really affecting the local ecology, being afraid that maybe that would have some kind of cascading effect on our environment. And there are models for this type of success, vaccinating animals to protect humans. I guess one example being uh, rabies. Yeah, so there was a rabies vaccine developed for animals. It it works in a really similar way. So. Um, it's a piece of kibble, like a food animal food pellet that has the vaccine in it or on top of it. Um, and this was developed a few decades ago now, and researchers and public health departments designed it to be spread across sort of large expanses of, of terrain by aircraft. And um, it would be dropped over these places and raccoons or foxes or whatever animal you're trying to target would find the food eat it, get immunized, and then wouldn't catch rabies. Um, This has been incredibly successful. People have done it in the United States, they've done it in Canada and in Europe, um, and really succeeded in bringing rabies levels uh, down a lot. Um, The trouble is that Lyme disease is a little bit more complicated than rabies. So rabies is sort of species specific. So if you have raccoon rabies, it's not going to jump to like a dog or something. Um, or a fox, and then sort of the fox's rabies isn't going to jump over to raccoons. Uh, So you could kind of target one animal at a time. Um, With Lyme disease, it's not quite like that. The same bacteria, the same exact bacteria infects many different animals. So there is some doubt that this mouse vaccine would work because maybe even if you vaccinated all the mice in an area, sort of other animals that also carry the bacteria like um, like chipmunks or shrews or things like that would be infecting so many ticks that it might not make that big of a difference anyway. Um, there are some arguments for why that might not matter. One is just that if you have fewer infected ticks in the environment because mice aren't carrying the disease anymore, that could slowly reduce the number of infected bites on other animals. And that over time could drop the prevalence of Lyme disease in other wildlife too. Um, But we don't really know if that's going to happen. And scientists are going to have to design studies to test that specifically before we have that answer. I'm talking with Angus Chen. He's a New York City-based science reporter. Um, his most recent story, story rather, in Scientific American uh, about vaccinating mice may finally slow Lyme disease. So can we talk more about uh, what's being uh, studied here in Connecticut in terms of uh, putting out this kibble that has a vaccine uh, against Lyme disease that mice are eating? Is it a particular uh, type of mouse uh, that is drawn to this, or it's just whatever uh, sees this uh, free kibble around that they're going to on it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's more the latter, I think. It's whatever sees this free kibble around is probably going to eat it if that kibble appeals to it. So, you know, I talked about shrews earlier, and shrews also carry Lyme disease, but they're not going to be interested in, in this type of kibble because that's just not the kind of food that they eat. Chipmunks, on the other hand, might eat this stuff. And, the, you know, if you're asking what type of mice we're looking at, we're specifically looking at the white-footed mouse, um, which is... You know, just the, the, the rodent that carries so much of this Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria. And I'll tell you a little bit about you know, some of the research that's been done already uh, on this, this vaccine. Uh, probably the first big important study to test this vaccine was done in upstate New York. Um, and what the researchers did was they just treated a bunch of fields, uh, about four fields, with the Lyme disease vaccine. And then they had a bunch of fields that didn't have the vaccine. And what they saw was over about a five-year period, the fields that had the vaccine um, ended up with way fewer ticks that were carrying Lyme disease than the fields that didn't have the vaccine spread throughout them. And what Connecticut researchers want to do now, so this is actually a collaboration between um, a a bunch of people. I think uh, Yale University is involved as well as uh, Connecticut State's entomology department. Um, they're trying to see if this vaccine would work in a more real-world scenario. So what they're doing is, um, or what they've already done, is sort of spread the kibble that contains this vaccine throughout a bunch of homes in a Connecticut neighborhood in Reading, Connecticut. And the bait is inside these little boxes, basically these, these little black houses that have holes in it for animals to run in and they can eat the bait inside and they can go back and go about their business. Um, This was run, I think, for about two years and we should be seeing the results from those pretty soon. Um, The researchers I talked to, they they didn't want to say exactly what they found because they haven't published yet, Uh, but they did say that the results are promising. They they look pretty good. Um, If not, if not indicating that this would be a silver bullet to line disease. So this by itself might not completely eradicate Lyme disease from our community, but it could actually help lower Lyme disease rates. I'm curious, Angus, uh, if these trials uh, prove successful, successful, um, you know, is there an, an issue with how much it would cost to um, deploy a strategy like this uh, more widespread? Yeah, you know, th- that's actually a really difficult question. And I'm glad you asked that because whether or not we end up using this strategy is going to depend on whether the cost of deploying it is going to be um, efficient. You know, is it going to cost us less to, de- to deploy this strategy than to just go about what we are doing normally and try to treat people when they uh, contract Lyme disease? Um, and the answer to that is we don't really know yet. Um, we kind of need the data from these studies that are being done before we can say, okay, well, if we spend this much on the Lyme disease vaccine, we'll see, you know, like a 10% or a 20% or a 30% drop in the prevalence of Lyme disease in our communities. And these public health departments that are going to be actually paying for this stuff will need to make that calculation to say, well, if we, if we end up seeing like a 30 or 40% drop in Lyme disease prevalence over five years, then it'll be worth it for us to spend you know, $2 million buying the stuff to treat neighborhoods every year. Um, whereas if you only see like a 5% drop in Lyme disease prevalence um, because of the, the vaccine, then 
public health departments might make the calculation and say, well, it's not worth it to use this. Um, we honestly don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, but if I had to hazard a guess, it seems like it, it, there's a good chance that it would be worth it. The trial that I talked about in New York State showed something like a, like a 70% drop in Lyme disease prevalence in those treated fields if you take, them and if you take all those treated fields together on average, uh, which is an enormous, um, an, an enormous success. So again, you know, to couch that a little bit, uh, we have to see if those results would still hold in a real-world scenario. Um, and, and we won't have the answer to that until probably later this year. Uh, later this year, because that's when the Connecticut trials uh, will be done? Yeah, that's when the Connecticut trials will be published. Um, they've actually already finished the trial. The researchers are just going through their data, they're analyzing it, you know, making sure that they've dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. Uh, well, Angus, this is very uh, interesting uh, to learn about. I'm curious uh, because, again, we're talking about uh, vaccinating mice to help uh, reduce uh, fewer cases of Lyme uh, as just one uh, tool in the toolbox, so to speak. But um, from your uh, discussions with scientists and researchers, uh, you know, is there a chance the medical community might revisit allowing a human vaccine against Lyme? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, my sense is that the medical community is probably ready to use the Lyme disease vaccine again, but it's not really up to the medical community. That's, it's really up to us as consumers to say, well, you know, this is something that we want and we want to demand it from pharmaceutical companies that would manufacture this stuff. Um, if there's a lot of demand for the product, then you know, maybe companies will go back and start making it again. Um, the reason why it was pulled off the market in the first place was because there was no demand because people were afraid of it. Pretty much sort of the unanimous opinion that I had gotten from uh, medical researchers and from uh, Lyme disease researchers is that the human vaccine works and it's safe. It's not really this question of, well, will the medical community accept this vaccine? It's, it's, it's whether or not we as a society will accept that vaccine. That's a good point to end on. Uh, Angus Chen, again, is a New York City-based science reporter. His recent story published in Scientific American. We'll tweet out a link at where we live. Angus, thanks so much. We hope to have you back. Thanks, Lucy. Great to be here. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Catch up on our previous shows by downloading our podcast or checking out wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening.